Hello folks, I'm Joel Van Hoogen and this is The Bread of Life, a radio ministry of the International Mission Church Partnership Evangelism and its associate fellowship, The Bread of Life in Boise, Idaho. To learn more about how God is using us to equip and engage the body of Christ in evangelism and discipleship and church planting, go to traincpe.org. And to learn more about our local church fellowship, go to breadoflifeboise.org. And now to God's Word. In Romans chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, Paul warns the individual feeling moral indignation and judgment against bad behavior to take heed. The mistaken notion of most people is that salvation comes to them by maintaining some chosen standard of morality, and so when they judge others, they hope they are exhibiting the essentials for their own salvation. But really, Paul says, they are exhibiting the reason for their condemnation. We'll begin today by noting the regularity in which everyone engages in this moralizing judgment of others. Here's where you begin, by the way, in this pursuit, this moralistic pursuit for your salvation. The beginning point is this. At least, at least, feel indignant about what other bad people are doing. You might struggle with this yourself, but at least have a sense of indignance the sin that others are performing, and this will get you off on the right foot. That's the idea. I have an app on my phone. You might have it as well. It's called the Next Door Neighbor app. I don't know if you have that. If you go on the Next Door Neighbor every once in a while, you'll discover all kinds of petty crimes that are happening in the community. And just this last week, one individual was pointing out the crime and actually had the picture of the woman who was encouraging her dog to actually do its morning business in his yard. So watch out for this lady. And then then another person posted a sign of somebody who had built a fence too high, close to an intersection, so it was obstructing the view when you pulled out in the intersection. And some child was going to get hurt as a result. And another person posted some message about someone who had come into their carport and had stolen one of their bicycles. And Now this is all kind of interesting stuff, but what's more interesting is to read the comments underneath it. Because once it's been posted, everybody chimes in, and oh, the moralizing that takes place then as people castigate the person who has not taken responsibility for their dogs and what they do. And then another person speaks about how irresponsible that fence builder is. And then there's somebody else that always chimes in to try to show that we need to be a little more even-handed and we need to understand these things. Maybe the person, you don't know what the needs of that person, maybe they needed the bike more than you did, right? And so back and forth go all the different moral posturing that takes place on that app. It's rather entertaining. It ramps up and it just goes on its way. And at some point in time, individuals become quite sarcastic and unkind with one another. And they deprecate the view of another person as spoke or given their two cents worth on it. On and on and on it goes. Donald Gray Barnhouse says this, discussing and considering this kind of competition, this moralizing competition to prove yourself better than another, to make this the ground from which you earn your salvation, to be able to show that you know what's wrong and you know what's right and you're just a step ahead. He writes, the man who sits in judgment upon someone else whom he considers in an ethical scale below him is as foolish as the man who has reached the top of Mount Everest and who laughs at the man who has merely climbed the hill back of his house in a competition between the two to get to the moon. (laughs) Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter whether you're on Everest and he's on a little knoll. 
retrospect to where it is you want to go and you think you need to go, you've not made any progress whatsoever. And you're not ever going to get there in that way. There is a validity here, by the way, in making judgments of right and wrong. That's not what we're saying here. That's not what Paul is not saying. There is a proper reporting of wrong things that are done, and there is a proper value in the social pressure around us that is used to some extent restrain us from bad behavior. It's good that we have neighbors, by the way, that peer into our windows at time, and you might not like it all the time, but when you're gone on a vacation, you're glad that they're around. It's handy at times. Paul is not arguing against that. But Paul sees the motive behind much of this. It is a default position to accentuate one's own sense of self-righteousness. There's a tribute that the person is making when they make these indignant judgments. And the tribute they're paying is to themselves. And to their own way of seeing things. They can recognize that that thing is not as it should be. They can see that things are not quite right and they have a soul that recognizes basically what's good and basically what's wrong and even if they let some things slide and they are not perfect themselves they at least can see how bad things can get and so it tells them that deep down really they're a good person they're making the right start here they're getting off in the right place and to their minds this is something of their own salvation I once had an individual who said to me quite earnestly for some little nicety I had done and it was a very inconsequential thing but he said I'm sure you're going to get to heaven you're a good person and what he meant to say I know was I'm sure we're going to get to heaven right we're good people we see these things and we know what are good things to do just because you can judge wrong and right around you does not mean you're going to heaven or that you're a good person that's the second point here the second point is this. It only means that you know enough of the standard by which God will judge you to be without excuse on the day of his judgment. You knew what was right. You knew what was wrong. Before a holy and sinless and pure God, you knew what he required of you. And to some extent, in some way, enough, you knew enough that, Paul writes, you're without excuse this underscores, by the way, now the next point here, and it's this. So those were two subpoints under our first point that uh, moralism is the false religion or the way which people seek to save themselves. But here's a second point. Furthermore, you're actually not saved by your moralism. You're actually condemned by those very judgments, those very moral judgments that you make. That's the second point. You're condemned by your capacity and ability to make moral judgments. That we can see or recognize what is wrong is simply because, and this is the case for the most part, that you can see and recognize what is wrong is simply because, you might not agree with me here, but consider it. It's because you have a point of identity with that wrong thing that resonates in your own heart. That you can see what is wrong is because that wrong thing runs some way resonates in your own heart. That's the idea that Paul is putting before us. You're sensitive in judgment quite often to those very things that deep down you know against your own selves. I discovered, for example, that parents oftentimes have less patience with the child that is most like them. Right? They see the error of that child because that 
kid is mirroring their own development and the way they behave, and they're just one step ahead of them. It irritates them and annoys them, not because the child is irritable, but because the child is quietly, without them knowing, revealing what's still in their own hearts, revealing what they're going through themselves. Often we accuse others of the attitudes and the behaviors that we most easily and regularly fall into ourselves. Freud knew this. Freud called it projecting. <laughs> we just project it on somebody else, but it's really our issue and our way of doing things. We just read this in the story of David when Nathan came and confronted David of his sins. And David is indignant to find out that there's a man that's done such a horrible thing as to have taken a little lamb from one poor man in his neighborhood. He, a rich man who had a large herd, and sacrificed that lamb to feed his guests instead of sacrificing one of his own lambs. David is indignant at such a robbery and such a theft and such a cruelty and a harshness. Nathan says, David, it's you. It's what you've done. It's how you've behaved. The reason you're sensitive and aware of it is because it's in your own heart. Your judgment, your condemnation is against yourself. We see this all the time with individuals. I have, through the course of my ministry, known a handful of women who had taken upon themselves to become banners of modesty, advertisements for modesty. And, you know, by the way, the word modesty comes from moderation. It's the idea of dressing in a proprietary way in a community. It's, it's understanding what the cultural norms are and dressing in such a way that you don't draw attention to yourself, but in a sense you moderately live within the community. But these individuals who were so committed to modesty were the most immodest people I'd met. They would have gone to a black tie affair with army boots and wearing an oak barrel around themselves to prove how modest they were. It wasn't modest. They were drawing attention to themselves in the demonstration of their modesty. This is what we're talking about. You can see something that you think is wrong and is not right. and You want to demonstrate how wrong it is. And the very thing you do demonstrates it's in you. When I was in college, I discovered that all the college students had a propensity to advertise their spirituality. Right? We had this beautiful campus in Minnesota, and it used to be a, a Catholic monastery, and the chapel had these beautiful stone floors, and there was a stone walkway on either side of the chapel, and there were windows all along the chapel, and you could look in and see whoever was in the chapel, and so if you wanted to go and pray in the chapel, everybody knew you were praying in the chapel, right? And so you would see certain people having their devotions all the time, and it kind of irritated me. They were kind of showing off, I thought, and then they started forming little groups that would go and have their Bible studying their prayer time in the chapel as you walk by. And it was always at times when, you know, you couldn't be missed. So I decided that I wasn't going to be like that. I found that there was a little elevator that wasn't being used next to the, where the library was. And it was always empty and it was never in use. And I figured out how to open up the door to that shaft. And I found a place where I could go and just study and read my Bible by myself. But as I was enjoying that, I was becoming more and more indignant at the way other people were behaving. And so... I remember going to a senior classman, I was a freshman at the time, and a number of senior classmen complaining about the behavior, this false spirituality that was out there doing all these things. I was silenced by one of them by him simply asking me, okay, Joel, I see what you're saying. Why are you telling me this? <laughs> what are you demonstrating about yourself and telling me this? He had trumped me. 
He had checkmated me. I was stuck. I was caught in my own net. I was advertising the spirituality of praying by myself in the elevator shaft that I had discovered. I'd just done it to you. <laughs> and I was guilty. You'll find a man who decries the sensuality of some woman's appearance as well and how terrible it is. And it's not that the story that Nathan told was not a story of a grave injustice. It's not that immodesty is not a form of self-glorification or that sensuality is not something that a woman should pass out and barter around, but one that she should guard against. It's just that the spirit that rises against it is often in one who shares a similar disposition of sin. That's why we see it. The right response to Romans 1, verses 18 through 32, read it. The right response is not, most certainly these individuals deserve God's wrath, amen, amen. It's to see the threads of evil that rise up from the heart of each individual person who's not standing in the face of God and whose heart is prone to turn away from the living God. And the right response is, Oh God, be merciful to us. Oh God, save them. Oh God, save me. Oh God, turn them back to yourself. Oh God, turn me back to your own ways. Oh God, break their hearts for their callousness. Oh God, break my heart. Keep my heart soft before you in your good and righteous presence. That's the right response. Well, thank you for listening to the Ministry of the Bread of Life. To learn more about our ministry, let me suggest you go to one of two websites. Go to traincpe.org to learn more about the work we're doing all over the world to equip and engage the body of Christ in personal evangelism, discipleship, and church planting. Or to learn about our work in your community, go to breadoflifeboise.org. Until the next time, God bless you.